Um, let's see, let's, we're going to be in Matthew 8 today. I should have said that sooner. We're in Matthew 8, the very end of the chapter. Uh, while you guys are turning, I'm going to read through those verses. A very interesting story. And when he had come to the other side, to the country of the Gadarenes, two demon-possessed men met him coming out of the tombs, so fierce that no one could pass that way. And behold, they cried out, What have you to do with us, O Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? Now a herd of many pigs was feeding at some distance from them, and the demons begged him, saying, If you cast us out, send us away into the herd of pigs. And he said to them, Go. So they came out and went into the pigs, and behold, the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the waters. The herdsmen fled, and going into the city, they told everything, especially what had happened to the demon-possessed men. And behold, all the city came out to meet Jesus, and when they saw him, they begged him to leave their region. Let's pray. Father, you have so much to say to us in your word, uh, Lord, and so much for us to apply to our lives. I pray today as we dig into your scripture, Father, that uh, your spirit would be active uh, in me, that I might speak your truth, uh, and would be active in all of our hearts, making room for this important uh, revelation of yours to us. Uh, Father, thank you for what you've done for us. Uh, we are so blessed to be called your children, and we are thankful. In Jesus' name, amen. A middle-aged woman has a heart attack and is taken to the hospital. While on the operating table, she has a near-death experience, and during this time, she sees God and asks him, Is this it? Is this the end? God says no, and indicates to her that she has another 37 years, 8 months, and 23 days to live. Good news. Shortly afterwards, she wakes up and is told by the doctor that the surgery was successful and that she can go home in a week. She's overjoyed and decides, it's time to make some changes in my life. First, as long as she's at the hospital, she decides to stick around just a little bit longer and have a facelift, some liposuction, and a tummy tuck. She does some online shopping while recovering and has several new outfits delivered while she's there. She even has someone come in and color her hair. Hmm. So she figures she's got 37 more years. She might as well make the most of it. So... Finally, the day arrives, and she walks out the hospital looking young and resplendent, and she's struck and killed by an ambulance passing by. She gets to heaven, and she says to God, God, what happened? You said I had another 37 years. He said, I didn't recognize you. <laughs> well, we want to make sure that we're a little better at recognizing things than, uh, yeah. So we've come to a very interesting story in Matthew's narrative about Jesus' ministry. I remember hearing about this story growing up, and it, it always struck me as kind of odd. Here are these two men that, uh, hmm, interesting. But to kind of give a little background, Jesus has just delivered the Sermon on the Mount. He's come down from the mountain and healed a leper. He's met the centurion, who has indicated that his servant is sick. This thing's being weird. Uh, and has healed the centurion's servant kind of by remote control, if you will, because the centurion recognized his authority. Um, he went to Peter's home where he found his mother-in-law to be sick, and he healed her. Uh, he was probably looking for rest and a meal before he went on with his journeys, and he did that. He got up, and, and we don't know if it was the next day, but he continued on his travels to the Sea of Galilee, and he crosses over, encountering a very violent storm. But he takes care of that with a word. 
and then lands on the other side. And when he and his companions leave the boat and begin walking, they encounter something really unusual. Verse 28 says, When he came to the other side, to the country of the Gadarenes, two demon-possessed men met him coming out of the tombs so fierce that no one could pass. You've got two demon-possessed men here who lived in tombs. Kind of a weird place to live for, for anybody, certainly. But note that not only are these men unclean because of demons that live inside them, they're also unclean because they live in the tombs. To the Jew, touching dead or things that are around dead bodies made you unclean. So these men were both unclean spiritually and physically. Notice that Jesus didn't avoid them, kind of like he did with the leper. So here these guys are. They come out to greet the passing party, and evidently they've terrorized people coming this way before. They seem to be known. And they are really fierce, and they're dangerous to travelers. And in fact, if we look in Luke's account, which has a little bit more information, we find out that they wear no clothes, although Luke only mentions one of them. Uh, they've often been bound, but they break their chains and their shackles, so they're very strong. And then when asked their name, they reveal that there were many demons. They, they use the name legion, which just indicates many, like possibly thousands. Um, so we've got two men here that are threatening Jesus and his party, uh, and they're really strange and scary. A couple of naked guys coming at you like wild maniacs. And I've not encountered anything like this before. In my walk with, with the Lord and my experience in life, I have never encountered anything like this. Has anybody encountered what you consider to be a demon-possessed person or, or maybe thought? Yeah, not very many. Not very many. And maybe, um, maybe one of the reasons that there's so much skepticism about demons and demon possessions today is because it seems, at least in the Western world, to be so rare. It's not like a story you hear very often. Although uh, I was talking to Tom the other day, I think it was Tom, and he related a story that he had heard at the pastor's conference recently about a, a fellow that had jumped out of the stadium when the word was being preached and slithered across the football field like faster than a man can sprint and that a pastor then took care of the problem. So, uh, you know, is this today? Is, is this real? Is this something that still happens? Um, I believe it's a mistake to dismiss demons and demon possessions. Uh, the Bible doesn't indicate that demons were ever removed or contained or somehow restrained, although that's coming. Uh, in fact, in Acts chapter 8, Philip, when he was out, cast out many demons, it says. And later, Paul casts out a spirit of divination uh, from a girl that seemed to be like a fortune teller and was kind of bugging him. Uh, so maybe some cases are dismissed because people just aren't familiar or maybe the behavior is attributed to drugs or even mental illness. I, I don't know. I don't have a lot of experience with this. But I do have a story to tell you from a missionary in Haiti who, Terry's not back with us. I don't tomorrow. Okay, Terry has been down in, in Haiti, Terry Wood, uh, as a missionary for us. So she may know something about this story. Uh, this is by a fellow named Howard Culbertson at the Southern Nazarene University. And he relays that an American military attache and his wife, who spent several years in Haiti, have written... Haiti is a magic island, and the laughter of a thousand African gods echoes through her mourns. These gods in their periodic possession of voodoo worshipers have fascinated anthropologists and tourists alike since the last century. Actually, voodoo should properly be defined as an ancestral worship cult. However, spirits, or loa, possession does play a very important part in voodoo. 
And this possession experience is, says Haitian psychiatrist Emerson Duyon, one of the things which Haitian society valorizes or tries to enhance the status of. Interesting. They're trying to play this up like it's a, a cool thing. Kind of scary. Uh, all kinds of explanations have been advanced for this phenomenon called loa possession. It's been regarded variously as a form of neurosis, as the fulfillment of a need for self-transcendence, an attention getter, an opportunity to act out fantasies, a chance to shed responsibility, <laughs> mass hysteria or masochism. Christos writes of a hallucination uh, or mass hypnosis as possible explanations and then says it could well be the visitation of supernatural beings. Dow argues that there's correspondence between descriptions of the present-day demonic phenomena and the descriptions in the New Testament. Alan Tippett goes a step further, particularizing the parallel when he says, probably there's no better extant or existing example of possession phenomena in the whole world in the form known as voodoo, especially in Haiti. What are some of the similarities to biblical possessions? When a Haitian loa possesses a person, a markedly different personality seems to take control. The possessed person behaves quite rationally, says Sargent, but in a way that the loa would behave. There are literally hundreds of loa, each with his or her own special voice, manners, facial expressions, and physical attributes. Each loa even has his own food or drink preferences, color, and clothing preferences to the extent that a possessed person may even change clothes after being possessed to conform more closely uh, to the loa who has possessed him. While possessed, many of the Haitians exhibit mediumistic abilities. Anthropologists have documented cases of possessed persons knowing secrets to which in normal life they would not have had access to. Haitian ethnologist Jean Price Mars tells of a possessed person giving predictions and prophecies about the future. There are interesting, interestingly also some interested instances in which the Loa recognized the higher authority of Jesus Christ, as happened in New Testament times. The ability of a possessed person to do things physically beyond the ordinary uh, is very prevalent. Uh, Jeremy Breida mentions an old man who climbs a tree like a monkey possessed and a girl who handles a red-hot iron without feeling pain. Almost without exceptions, the beginnings of Loa possession are marked by a trembling kind of frenzy without control or direction. The person may stagger, fall, or go into convulsions. We've heard that kind of thing in, in the biblical accounts. Interestingly, upon conversion, Protestants normally are freed from further Loa possession experiences. In fact, Tippett says that the type of Protestantism most successful in Haiti is the form most hostile to voodoo because it comes into encounter with it on a meaningful, meaningful level. The freedom that born-again believers have from possession is recognized in Haitian society. Former missionary or Orjala notes that Nazarene pastors in Haiti are continually being called upon to cast out the loa. The deliverance, when it occurs, seems to be instantaneous, even as if, uh, even as it is, and the deliverance is recounted in the New Testament documents. So, kind of an interesting story and a little scary, and certainly something outside of our regular experience. Uh, but the Bible talks about demon possession, and I don't think we should discount it. Uh, it's not prevalent here, but I think it's important that we recognize that it's real, uh, and then it happens. Uh, but I don't want to focus on demon possession, even though you might not be able to tell it by the length of that story. I'd like to shift our focus to something a lot more important, which is how Jesus dealt with this demon possession. Let's see. Notice, just like it was reported by the missionaries in Haiti, that the demons that possessed the men in our passage in Matthew recognized Jesus. They said, behold, they cried out, 
What have you to do with us, O Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? In verse 29. And also notice that they're focused like a, pardon the use of the phrase, like a laser on Jesus. Now, we know from the previous verses that Jesus had just crossed the, the lake, the Sea of Galilee, in a boat with his disciples. Don't hear the demons saying much about them. Their focus is on Jesus. And their focus is on Jesus because they recognize who he is. They actually call him the Son of God. And interestingly, there are only four places in Matthew where Jesus is called the Son of God. The first is when Jesus is being tempted in the wilderness. The devil says, if you are the Son of God, which to me indicates that he knew who he was. Uh, And then here, and then there are two places further, and, and that's it. The only people that recognize and have called him, at least in Matthew's account, the Son of God so far, are Satan, up to this point, and these demons. I think that's interesting. So the world has yet to recognize him, but the fallen angels know who he is. Uh, And they were afraid of him. But why were they afraid of him? That's important. Their fear of his presence is because they're afraid that Jesus might start their torment before his time. Remember what they said, what have you done what have you to do with us, O Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? Two really important points here. These demons recognized that there would be torment. That's a word we don't like to talk about. And they also recognized though that it wasn't yet time. The demons knew that this was coming and they understood at least to some extent what would happen and they were afraid of this. Because to them, as to us, this was a real place that would occur at a definite time. Uh, We need to think that way too. A lot of people today don't believe in a hell, don't believe in in demons. Uh, The Bible speaks a lot about them, and Jesus actually speaks more about hell than anybody else. Uh, Listen to how John describes this in Revelations verse 20 or excuse me, chapter 20, and they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints in the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them, and the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Now John uses a lot of of uh, symbolism in the book of Revelations. And, you know, is it physical fire? Is it a, is it a physical lake? I, I don't understand. Maybe some of you guys understand it better than I do. But I do know that it says they will be tormented, whatever that means, won't be good, day and night, forever and ever. And the demons wanted to avoid this. And so should we. So it is a place, and there will be torment, and we want to avoid it. We do not want to hear... As we stand before God, the words in Matthew 25, he will say to those on who is left, depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. Now, I don't really want to dwell on hell either. I think it would be foolish to ignore its presence in this passage. Uh, Hell's a real place, at least as we understand places. I think we're a little limited in this life. Uh, There will be real torment, anguish, pain, don't understand exactly what that means again. Uh, but the demons knew that this is where they would be spending eternity. So we may not have a clear picture, but man, we should thank God that Jesus did something about it for us. So back to the story. Verse 30. Now a herd of many pigs 
was feeding at some distance from them. And the demons begged him, saying, If you cast us out, send us away into the herd of pigs. Now, some people think that the demons picked this herd of pigs because they knew that what was going to happen, they would drive the pigs into the lake and the pigs would, you know, and the, and the area would be really mad at him because he had destroyed their herd of pigs. So some people think that the, the demons were just trying to shut down Jesus' ministry in the area. Other people think that maybe the pigs were just a convenient target. It, you know, they were there, so we'll just pick them. But I kind of wonder, if you're a Jew, what do you think about pigs? Yeah, they're unclean animals. I mean, pigs are something that Jews don't want to have anything to do with. Uh, some people even say that the, the pigs were being raised by Jewish farmers kind of outside the area of Israel, and so to, to sort of punish the farmers, Jesus you know, did the pig thing. Uh, but I, I think that these demons were so desperate to avoid torment, and you notice they did, in the words of, of Matthew, they did beg Jesus that they were either willing to enter into at least what was to a Jew something unclean and, and gross, uh, or maybe knowing that Jesus was a Jew, that he would look at these pigs in that way. They were so desperate that they said, well, hey, you know, Jesus will think this is like the next, next best thing to torment, so we'll send him into the pigs. We'll ask to go into the pigs. Because uh, pigs are kind of like the leper of animals. But uh, the demons would rather go there than into torment. So Jesus allows this, and he commands them. In verse, 28, uh, in verse 32, he says, And he said to them, Go. So they came out and went into the pigs, and behold, the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned under the water. First thing to notice here, the demons didn't do anything until Jesus gave the word. The demons asked, the demons waited, and the demons didn't do a thing until Jesus said, go. They were completely under his authority. Now, once Jesus gave permission, they fled into the pigs, but I don't really understand exactly what happened here. I'm guessing the presence of the demons must have driven the pigs mad, and they just rushed down into the, into the sea and drowned. But what I find most interesting about this story is the reaction to all of this. Verse 33 says, The herdsmen fled, and going into the city, they told everything, especially what had happened to the demon-possessed men. And behold, all the city came out to meet Jesus, and when they saw him, they begged him to leave the region. So the herdsmen probably recounted more than just about the demon-possessed men, uh, but he focused on that. He focused on, or the herdsmen focused on, what had happened to the demon-possessed men. Uh, they'd seen what Jesus had done. Of course, they were impressed. I think we would have been too. Um, but the townsmen who came out afterwards didn't seem to care that the two men had been freed from the demon's possession or care about the power that Jesus had displayed in actually casting out these demons. Uh, they were either maybe afraid of Jesus' power, or maybe they were just plain mad that they'd lost a herd of pigs. Uh, in either case, they didn't recognize who Jesus really was. Isn't it ironic that the demons did, but the townspeople didn't? The demons recognized who Jesus was. The importance of this relates to, well, there are lots of different things, but the importance of this in Matthew's narrative to us is that it fits into a theme that he's been telling us from the very beginning of his book. He's been telling us exactly who Jesus is, and this is just one more story in that line. Let's go back to some highlights. 
In chapter 1, we're told that he's the son of David, and thus part of the kingly line of the Jews. We're also told he's the son of Abraham, which means he's true Jewish bloodline. We're told that his birth was announced supernaturally by angels, also in chapter 1. In chapter 2, his parents were guided supernaturally again by angels so that they would run to Egypt because Herod was after him. Herod wanted to kill him and, in fact, killed many uh, Jewish boys. Um, <coughs> excuse me, that doesn't work well. He was recognized by the wise men of the East as king of the Jews. They, they understood what the sign in the heavens, again, supernaturally, understood what the sign in the heavens meant. The current reigning king, Herod, feared him to be the king of the Jews to the point that he was willing to kill uh, not only that baby, but every other baby boy in the area that had been born in and around the time that Jesus was born, based on the, the account of the wise men. His coming fulfilled many prophecies. In the first four chapters alone, and I've, I've skipped a few, but in Isaiah 7, uh, we were told that he's, he would be born of a virgin and called Emmanuel, meaning God with us. We're torn, told in Micah chapter 5 that he would be born in Bethlehem in the region of Judea. We're told in Hosea 11 that he would return from Egypt as he did after King Herod died. We're told in Isaiah 9 that he would live in Galilee. And in Isaiah 40, we're even told about his forerunner, John the Baptizer or John the Baptist. So not only has he been supernaturally proclaimed, supernaturally protected, he's been supernaturally foretold as well in prophecy hundreds of years before he was ever born. Matthew continues the narrative, though, and he tells us that after his baptism, a voice from heaven came announcing, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. And a dove came from heaven. The spirit came in the form of a dove from heaven and rested on him. This isn't something that happens to most of us. He was recognized by the devil as the son of God during his temptations in chapter 4. After the Sermon on the Mount in chapters 5 through 7, the comment is made, he teaches as one with authority. It's pointed out that Jesus teaches with authority. Comes down the mountain, finds the leper, sees, heals the centurion's servant, showing his authority, demonstrating his authority over disease, which is also a fulfillment of prophecy. His authority over nature is mightily demonstrated when he calms the storm with a word. Here they are in a boat, and everybody's afraid they're going to die. And Jesus wakes up and, and kind of scolds them for their lack of faith. And he steps out or does what he does and says the word, and suddenly the storm is calmed. And you notice the, the disciples' reaction to this. What kind of man is this? And now in this story, Jesus' authority over the spiritual realm is demonstrated by his casting out of the demons. Matthew's been telling us all along who Jesus is, and the demons recognize this. So either the townspeople failed to see who Jesus was or just flat out rejected him, preferring their status quo and wanting to raise their pigs and not be disturbed, probably angry over the loss of their livelihood. But this stands in stark contrast to the theme that Matthew's been developing for us. As we've read in Matthew, we can see how as he writes, he continues to illustrate through a lot of different situations the true identity of Jesus supernaturally. He's foretold, announced, protected. His authority is demonstrated by his teaching, by his healings, by his mastery over nature, and then over the spiritual realm by the casting out of demons. In fact, the very first verse of Matthew sets the stage for all of this as it declares to the world, 
Let me read verse 1 to you. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Jesus Christ, or you could say Jesus the Messiah, the Jewish word that Christ came from. Or you could define Messiah to be Jesus, the anointed one of God. The demons knew him. They called him the son of God, and they recognized him as Lord. Paul says in Colossians that we should set our minds on things above. So what should we set our minds on? I think the first thing that we should set our mind on is the answer to this question. What sort of man is this? Do you recognize him? Jesus is God's anointed one. Jesus is the Son of God. And Jesus is Lord. Let's pray. Father, we bow our hearts and our heads. Uh, Lord, and if we had the room, our knees in recognition of your majesty and your holiness. Uh, Father, we recognize you as creator and sustainer of all life and redeemer of our souls, Lord, in what you've done for us through Christ Jesus. I pray as we go from this place today, Father, that you would bring to our remembrance uh, the thing that's the most important to all of us, that Jesus is who he said he was, Jesus did what he came to do, and Jesus is your anointed one, your son, our Lord, and our Savior. These things we pray in his mighty name. Amen.